Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash restory. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. So today, I am welcoming Dan Allender to the Restory Show. Now, he has been a mentor to me. He doesn't know that, but um, he has been a really great hero and mentor to me in the area of overcoming past sexual abuse. Some of you know my story, some of you don't, but I um, endured about a year of sexual abuse as a five-year-old, and I've been processing it ever since. It's been a, a really long journey for me, and uh, I wrote, ended up writing a book called Not Marked, Finding Hope and Healing After Sexual Abuse in the Aftermath of All the Things That I've Learned and Walked Through as a Healing Person. So anyway, I was so excited to be able to welcome Dan to the show today because he has such a great perspective on recovery from sexual abuse, and he has a new book out. His first book that changed my life was called The Wounded Heart, and now he has a follow-up book to that, and he'll share um, more about that in the show. So I am so excited. Please join with me to welcome Dan Allender. Hey, everybody. It is my pleasure today to have Dan Allender with me. He has been my um, guru, and he doesn't even know it, and uh, has been a huge part of my healing journey in sexual abuse. Many of you know that story. And so um, he wrote a book a long time ago called The Wounded Heart, which has been kind of, and it also has a workbook, and it's been kind of the way that people have walked through healing and the healing journey, especially Christ followers. And he has written, a, not an updated version, but a new book called Healing the Wounded Heart, The Heartache of Sexual Abuse and the Hope of Transformation. And so I am just so grateful to have you, Dan, here on the podcast today. Oh, Mary, so delightful to be with you. And I love the fact that you had to catch yourself because it is hard to communicate. It, it is not an updated version. Uh, and it, at first, I really thought, I'm just going to revise The Wounded Heart. But the more I began writing, it was just clearer, really, very quickly in the process. Now, this is a brand new book, really, with what I think I've learned over the last 25 years since writing the book. So it's an entirely different but yet related book. Yeah, and I will say that that's true. I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through now, and I am already underlining a lot of things. And there was a lot of new insight in there that I, you know, more layers of healing that I need to go through. And so I'm really, really grateful. And I can't wait to get this book out to as many people as possible. Oh, thank you. Well, and obviously, as a woman of integrity, you know that none of us are fully healed until, as First John says, when you see him, then you will be as he is, which to me at least says that 
until that day, uh, I've got I've got continents of growing to do, and that healing process is a glorious, painful at one level, but glorious in terms of its ongoing work of calling me more and more and more to come to be the person I was meant to be. I, I just so agree with that. And I think one of the things, and, and maybe you've dealt with this with some of your clients, but one of the things I've dealt with in recovery has been this idea that there is a once and for all healing. Oh. And <laughs> so I was in my 20s and I thought, it's done. I'm never going to have to deal with this again. And then it would rear its ugly head again. And then I would get stressed out and sad and have to deal with more stuff. And so you're right. I think it's a process. And so how have you helped abuse victims deal with that particular hurdle? It's strange as it is to say once and for all until the next once and for all. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, people have asked, when did you come to Jesus? And I'd say, well, in some ways, last evening, mm-hmm. uh, I, I actually came to believe the gospel. And, of course, that leaves the question, well, did you not believe the gospel before? And it's like, oh, no, the day before I believed as well. But now there is a newness mm-hmm. to the relationship with him. And, again, that's not true every day, but enough to say that there have been many times I've come into a newer and freer relationship with Jesus. Well, if that's true relationship with him, then something of the healing of a heart, healing of a soul, healing of, of, of an inner being and outer being, well, we know it is progressive, growing and growing, and yet the paradox is the more we grow, in some sense, the more we see how much we are left to grow. So I, I don't see that as a contradiction. I see it as a change in perspective that I have now because I'm seeing so much more than I saw before. The terrain to be traveled is much clearer given that I have a greater height of being able to see than I had before. I think that's true. And and maybe even better glasses to see, as you said, the terrain of the landscape of what's going on. So you've, you've been counseling people for a while. And since the release of the first, the wounded heart, um, before healing the wounded heart came out, you've had 25 years of experience. So what would you say is maybe one or two of the things that surprised you the most or what you've learned in those two and a half decades that maybe is surprising to you? Well, I think the first thing is that we know now so much more about the brain Mm. than we did when I wrote the book in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, We knew a lot then, but what we know today is so much further. But I also need to say, we've got so much progress that's been made, but the movement of understanding through fMRIs, PET scans, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, as the technology evolves and develops, and one of the things that Obama set for really this this century is the study of the brain. Mm. We know know much, but we also know we don't know that much. Uh, So I don't want to overstate how much we know. But we know, for example, that trauma shuts down the left frontal lobe, Mm -hmm. where language, Broca's area, shuts down with trauma. Well, we've always known that memories of trauma tend to be very fragmented. Well, we understand now more why that's the case, and clearer 
how we are meant to engage fragmented memories. And we, we know that there's always people who use the phrase like, I know this in my head, I just don't seem to know it in my heart. Yeah. Well, we understand far more about the divide in our limbic system between what's called our amygdala, uh, which is the part of our brain, our, our limbic system that sets us into a sense of danger, uh, into kind of like, oh my gosh, there's a tiger chasing me right now, versus what's called our hippocampus, which holds more memory, uh, kind of a beginning, middle, and end to the memory. Well, we understand that with trauma, the hippocampus shrinks somewhere about 15%. So we understand now why there is this fragmentation and inner divide between what I feel and what I think. Now, does that help us immediately give a cure? No, it's not a pill. Mm-hmm. It's not something where you wave a baton in front of your brain. But just as when we understand more, we have a potential to be kinder. Yeah, We, we have a potential to be, in one sense, oh, this is normal. This is what one would expect given the harm. And so I find that my clients, when they have a little, even just a little understanding of the neurology of trauma, they have a better way of beginning to care for their body in the same way that if you understood you had a cold and that if somebody had never told you before, the vitamin C is really helpful. But why? How it bonds uh, into the body and begins to bring about a, a healing process, it opens the door to true change, but also to greater kindness. That is really helpful for so many of us because I think survivors and abuse victims who have been traumatized, and most of those are, um, all of them are, uh, we tend to be extremely hard on ourselves and always just kicking ourselves. We, it's like because we've been abused, that's our normal. So then we go and retaliate against ourselves. So I love that you're bringing in some of the work of Dr. Daniel Amen and some of the others who have been working on, you know, brain imagery to really give us all a break a little bit. Absolutely. And then I think if there's a second, shall we say, stream that Mm -hmm. has become clearer to me, it's the work of the kingdom of darkness. Yes. Uh, against us with regard to that natural tendency for shame to be turned against ourselves with contempt, but then to be clearer that that's really the plan of evil, that evil, even in its name, Satan, means Mm. accuser. So even your language of, you know, we are naturally hard on ourselves, but then we also have an unnatural enemy that's working to flame that, to fuel it with its own resources, whisperings, attacks, threats, mm. seductions. It, it simply wants to add more shame. So as we come, in some ways, and I don't think it's just this simple, as we get clearer about the biology of trauma, as we get clearer about the spirituality mm. of trauma, then we're in many ways in a far better two-handed source to engage the issue of our story. And I'm still convinced, as I was when I wrote The Wounded Heart, that if we step into the narrative, the story that we actually remember, um, the Spirit of God will give us clarity as to where shame is located. But if we don't know how biologically to care for our body in the midst of shame, 
And if we're not aware that we have an enemy that's working to make sure we don't deal with shame, then we're, we're little less or significantly less capable of dealing with the trauma of the past in the way it's being lived out and reenacted in the way we're living today. I love that. I just appreciate you bringing that part into the book because when I deal with abuse victims and trauma victims like that, that it feels like that's one of the greatest things that we work on is the lies that we believe and the, the overwhelming shame that seems to hover over the heads and hearts of people who have walked through this kind of abuse. So I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, when, when you have lies, you also have a liar. And evil has so often brought the reality that you're the liar. This story isn't true. It's not as bad as you have made it out mm-hmm. to be. Uh, in fact, you had a part in it. Uh, you, you see, how, see how your body responded when you were violated in this way? So it wasn't really a violation. You actually allowed your body some level of arousal. So already the accuser is mounting the assault and therefore shutting us down. And in that silence of just kind of wanting to put your hand up against and turn away, it's already accomplished that it has left you condemned, accused, and so often our heart joins it. Uh, It isn't that we just believe a lie. We've actually come to be bonded to a lie. And that, oh, that accretion of bonding to a lie. We have a father in this sense. Uh, Scripture says that the evil one is called the father of lies. uh, And it wants us uh, to actually believe we are a liar along with it. And when that bonding occurs, it really is a form of living suicide. I agree. I've often said that one of the enemy's greatest weapons in this world is sexual abuse and because it, it, it gets to your core and your identity. One of the things that I appreciated about the first couple chapters of the book was you talked about how our cultures has become saturated with this kind of dismissive attitude about sexual abuse. And I think that's also tied to spiritual warfare. But talk a little bit about how you've encountered that as a therapist of people saying, well, that, yeah, that uncle did that, but it didn't really matter. Well, and I, I don't, I, I'm old. I'm, I'm 63. So let's just start with that. As <laughs> I have dealt with people, let's say from their 45 and older, I don't find dismissiveness as the primary structure of defense. It's more denial, more an effort to relocate it as my blame. But when I'm dealing with people, and I, I teach at a school where we've got the average age is probably about 28 years of age, between sort of 20 and 35, I find this community to be far more dismissive because Mm -hmm. they have lived in a culture that has been far more sexualized at a far younger age than my generation. And as well, living in a hookup culture where date rape, having sex with someone under some level of intoxication, and therefore, you know, I shouldn't have, but I did, but nonetheless, it's no big deal. You know, I find abuse shifting somewhat from what could be called child sexual abuse to abuse that's happening more in that 12 to 22 range that has become so normalized 
that at least as a culture, I would say this book particularly is written for people who are addressing either with their children between the ages of 20 and 30 or individuals between 20 and 30 who have lived in what I would call at least a sexually abusive culture and therefore normalized it. That's deeply distressing to me. Yeah, it distresses me as well. I think we tend to I guess, I think you probably believe this too, but I think people just don't want to believe in a world of sexual abuse. They just would rather not think that it exists. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and again, in a world like ours, we, we don't want to believe that terrorism is possible in our town. Right, exactly. No, it, it, it can happen in Paris, mm-hmm. but not San Bernardino. Right. And if San Bernardino, it can't happen in Iowa. Uh, it can't happen in Seattle. And, and again, I'm not trying to be a purveyor of fear, but it, it is, we live in a profoundly dark world and we're a world at war, right. not, not with Islam, not with X, Y, and Z, but we're, we're in a war with the kingdom of darkness. And if, if you look at the, you know, the, the return evil gets, for a very small movement, I mean, how, <clears throat> how long does it take to sexually abuse a child? Literally, the answer is seconds. But the return on investment, the ROI, uh, literally 20 seconds could shadow a human heart for a lifetime and keep them from enjoying their heart, their body, their, their spirit, and others. Oh my gosh, uh, at one level you go, it is one of the most favorite means of doing the deepest damage because it's so common and so easy to actually then ignore. So in thinking about, I know that you have had you know, an ex- some experiences in between both books where you have begun to deal with your own sexual abuse story. In your healing journey, what was your most profound aha moment as you've kind of opened up your heart to healing in that area? Well, I've said this publicly in other places, but I had probably been five chapters into writing The Wounded Heart before I even allowed myself to name that I had a history of past sexual abuse, which is, uh, I mean, at one level, is still humbling to say, well, but it's also very common that we can see in others what we at one level know to be true but fail to see in ourselves. But I think probably one of the big ahas for me in these 25 years is looking at the relationship with my mother and looking at how the, the bond of being her surrogate, right. uh, spousal surrogate, and then stories that I would have viewed as just weird, like uh, one of my first encounters with sexuality was going uh, with my mother to the Moulin Rouge, um, which is nothing but a, uh, I hate to even use the phrase sophisticated, but a sophisticated strip show. Well, that's a heartbreaking story that I would have not really allowed my heart to say anything other than that's weird, like that's weird. But often the word weird or strange and the language of abuse 
often is a childlike or adolescent way to escape the reality that it's more than just inappropriate. It's actually sexually abusive. And opening the door to name that my mother sexually harmed me then opened the door to addressing other ways in which uh, my mother not only used but violated me as a young boy. I'm grateful my mother is with severe dementia, but I'm grateful that prior to her loss of ability to know me and to know herself, that we had the opportunity to address some of the harm that I felt appropriate to bring to her with a heart of reconciliation, a heart of repentance, a heart of forgiveness. So I think the other side to all that is there's so much more room for healing, for true restoration than I think I believed even 10 years ago. And I think that <laughs> strange for a healer, a psychologist, somebody has worked in this field for a long season, actually to say, I really think there's a whole lot more potential for restoration if we're willing to deal with the warfare, if we're willing to engage the accusations and condemnation that we often just actually view as sort of inevitable then I think there's a, a far greater excitement. And in some ways, uh, somebody asked me this not long ago, like, aren't you tired of this? <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> like, you've done this. How can, you, how can you be involved in the heartbreaking and, and stories of darkness, of, of abuse, and think that you can continue to? Aren't you sort of overwhelmed by your own vicarious traumatization? And the answer is, oh, yeah, there have been seasons where there's nothing sure. more that I wanted than to quit. But in some ways, I think I'm more excited about the potential of what the human heart can know and enjoy uh, to receive and to give uh, than I've ever been. So it's like I'm, I'm asking Jesus for at least another 20 years to be able to do – I'd actually like to write the 50th anniversary yeah. third volume on this uh, after another 25 years. Now, whether I'm allowed to tarry and to be continent enough and clear enough on my own thinking to be able to do so, who knows. Uh, but there is a greater work that I believe that the Spirit of God wishes to do among the people of God with regard to abuse and trauma than what we as a community have allowed so far. For the listeners of Restory, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. Now today, I suggest you try Dan Allender's older book, The Wounded Heart, because it is an audio. Um, or also, if you're looking to work through some of those issues, you could try Not Marked, which is narrated by me. So some great books, but there's lots of awesome books out there. And you can get one of those or one of those books you've been wanting to listen to at audibletrial.com forward slash restory. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash restory to get your free audiobook. I appreciate that. I was recently in Geneva and I was teaching a group of writers there um, at a YWAM base. And at the end of it, one of the people came up and said, you're probably the most free abuse victim I've ever met. And an another girl said, because she also had this in her past, she said, I dreamed about meeting some, and I'm, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I, I'll have a point in a second, but she said, I've, I've imagined that there is someone like you out there in the world, but I didn't think it could actually be possible. 
And so it's just been really, it's a good testimony to the fact that we really do need to continue to pursue healing. It's like this dogged, important pursuit. And it is a pursuit not for your sake necessarily, although I'm really grateful that I have freedom. It's for the sake of other people out there who desperately need to know that there is joy on the other end of this. Well, and I understand the proclivity to not want to toot uh, your own (laughs) horn, uh, but let's just say glory is glorious. Beauty is beautiful. And when you're in the presence of freedom, and again, if there are two key words that I think are the byproduct of, of the restoration of the heart, it's freedom and joy. More capacity to be who you are and more joy, not just in life, but more joy in the Lord, but more joy in who he's made you to be in relationship with him. So that to me are this, those are the two huge signatures of a heart that's no longer under the same level of bondage to shame and contempt, and that is a greater freedom and a greater joy. Yes. And one of the things that I think you touched on really profoundly, and and I hadn't thought about it quite this way before, so I'm really grateful you did, but you talked about the role of kindness in the person who's been sexually traumatized and how it's hard for them to receive that. But as I look back on my own healing journey, there were so many people who were outrageously kind to me, and it was really a part of that story. So talk a little bit about why kindness is so important and why maybe it's hard for us to accept. Well, let's start with what I consider to be the deepest damage of abuse. Certainly, when we were abused, we were almost always groomed beforehand. And even if the grooming lasted longer than no longer than five minutes, there's a grooming process. So we experienced uh, betrayal, unquestionably. And betrayal shatters a sense of goodness. We have certain expectations of what a teacher or what a coach or what a neighbor ought to be. And when that shattered, it literally shatters a sense of normative, like the world is not what we think it is any longer. That's huge. But we also experience powerlessness, that sense of, I can't stop the harm. I can't make it be different. And to lose a sense of power is to lose a sense of freedom. So those two alone, betrayal and powerlessness, are huge. But I've always believed that the real deepest war of abuse is the sense of complicity, that I was aroused by what my abuser brought to my body and to my heart. They pursued me. They wanted me. And they read me. And in that, they brought my body and heart something of what I wanted to have in relationship with my mom or my dad, but I didn't. So when you put language to that and then speak about the fact that in touch of primary or secondary sexual body parts, let alone hair, face, buttocks, any part of your skin, touch creates arousal. And even if that arousal is bound to fear or shame, it's still arousal. And there evil starts doing its most diabolic work, because that's where accusations come. That's where you end up making agreements that your sexuality is ugly or dangerous or revulsive. And in those lies that you come to believe, you, in some sense of the word, join evil in its seduction of your heart to hate, to curse your body. 
And so if that is the work of evil, it should then stand that part of the work has to be to engage the heart, the mind, the body with the very thing that evil used to turn our body against us. God must offer us the very thing that evil chose to use against us to open our heart to him. And we have a phrase in Romans chapter 2, it's a longer passage of course, but using but one phrase, it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And then Paul asks very plaintively, why? Why do you treat the kindness of God with contempt? So right there, you've got this intermixture of contempt, kindness, Uh, and in some ways, a stance of hatred or curse. We need to face that kindness arouses, and do you hear the key word? It arouses something within us bodily, somatically. It brings our body pleasure to have someone be kind. So already you can hear something in me goes, hell no, Uh, this feels too literally like hell. I'm going to flee from it. Uh, And so often... But it's so tragic that many victims reenact the past abuse by ending up in a marriage or friendships or work-related or church-related abusive worlds where they end up repeating the damage by, uh, in one sense, hating kindness. So when kindness comes, it actually feels terrifying to the person who's been abused, which is, it's almost like that sense of my wiring is backwards. What my body should feel alive with feels terrifying. What my body ought to view as no actually feels more comfortable. And if I can come to name that with grief for the patterns that I've played out in past relationships or even in the relationships I'm currently in, then there's a possibility with grief there can be comfort. And we have that clear gift from the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And comfort is a form of kindness. So uh, again, if we can clearly say, when I say the word kindness, I do not mean by that the word nice. I mean a kind of in-your-face, fierce commitment to kindness is very different than nice people who do nice things for other people. Uh, So it is kindness that changes our heart, not pleasantries, niceness, getting along, avoidance of conflict. That's good. And I think it's, you know, most people looking back on their journey will see that that's kind of how God breaks in is in obviously scriptural, you know, he breaks in through his kindness and it endears us to him. So as I'm looking at this book and and in the book that my husband and I wrote together, we had this kind of passion to see the body of Christ to be a a healing balm instead of what it has been in the past, which has been kind of a, just get over it. You're, you know, quit rehashing the past. Don't tell your story, blah, blah, blah. So how can someone who's, who is not an abuse victim and they've read healing the wounded heart, how will that help them come alongside or walk alongside a sexual abuse victim? Well, I think we both agree that you can't, you can't see God change what you've not been willing to name. Right. And, and, and in some ways, uh, the word confession, the Greek word is homo legeo, which means saying the same thing as. So when I use the word confession, most people assume by that they, that I mean saying that I'm wrong. But telling the truth is a form of confession. 
being able to say, as I've been able to say in the last 25 years since I wrote The Wounded Heart, that my mother was involved in sexual harm. Now, if you press and say, did your mother sexually abuse you? I'm still at a point where I'm going, yeah, but she never touched me physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, oh, Dan, uh, it, it, you're not accusing your mother. You're simply naming what's true. And there's been reconciliation and goodness. So y- you can name. Yes, your mother sexually harmed you. She sexually abused you. And thank God that the abuse only went to this limit, but it doesn't change the fact that there was harm. So that ownership, naming, allowing yourself to name truth in your own story, that's one of the gifts that a husband or a wife of an abuse victim can speak to the reality of these patterns are being played out with me here, here, and here without judgment, without accusation, but in many ways with a kind of honesty of this is where I see you shut down. This is where I see you turn against yourself. This is where you pick a fight with me in order to escape a level of loss that you don't want to enter. And that level of truth-telling in the context of kindness, and boy, truth-telling without kindness is not uh, helpful criticism. It's cruelty. So we need to be aware that when we speak, we need to learn how to read their story better. And the presumption as a spouse is I know my wife's story. And yet the nature of all abuse is that it has to be repetitive engagements with the story that begins to heal this portion. And then the telling 20 more times opens the door to healing this portion. So I think we get a kind of, well, I told the story and it didn't seem to help. Or I told the story several times and I felt better, but I still know it's not resolved, but I've already told it, so I shouldn't tell it again. Oh, Mm -hmm. oh, please, here, you are meant to engage this story even in the sense that Jesus bears the scars of the cross through all eternity. I mean, his glorification didn't take away the marks of the cross. Why do we presume that we are going to get over it so that our scars don't go with us into heaven. You know, I have to say it very bluntly to say, I, I believe the scars of Jesus are beautiful and mm-hmm. heartbreaking. And your scars that you suffered with regard to abuse, they're heartbreaking, but they are meant to become beautiful. A kind of stance with that scar of being able to say, hell no, and heaven yes. And so I need companions Because abuse was done in private, it was done in the dark, it was done under the the fabric of silence. Abuse has to be addressed in the light, with a community, with language. And if we go back to that original remark that we were talking about, memory is fragmented. It will only become more coherent as I begin to fill in the gaps, as I begin to name more of what's true. But that's more than one telling as the story becomes clear and I can name it with another, that's when I believe, along with addressing the spiritual war, opens the heart to such vastly new freedom. I agree. And I I run into people a lot who said this exact thing that you said. They'll say, well, I told it to one person and they they didn't believe me. 
And so my point has been, you have to continue to tell that story, but you need to have some discernment about safe people and be able to find some really great people who dignify you by asking clarifying questions and who are willing to lay their hands on you and pray for you through the weeping and so important. Well, and again, back to that, we have been in some ways set up to trust those who are untrustworthy and to not trust those who actually are. And so we often reenact the patterns of abuse. And that's another element to this new book that I think I'm clearer about in part because I've lived longer and and had to deal with my own reenactments of addiction or reenactment of, in, in some ways, being part of the setup of my own form of sabotage of myself and in naming it, seeing it, grieving it, and also seeing the warfare that needs to be addressed. I'm not going to claim I'm out of that. I no longer struggle with that, but there's so much more, uh, back to that word, so much more freedom, so much more joy. And it really does require that we have guides, good therapists, good pastor, uh, or just a more experienced person ahead of us. And we need a community. Uh, And that's often two or three others who are wrestling with different dimensions of their own story. And it doesn't even have to be all of a group just dealing with the topic of sexual abuse. I need to be with honest people who have a heart for Jesus, who are not ignorantly opinionated, and therefore with only one way to address this, but also sensitive enough to the Spirit that they are able to pursue the matters of the heart well. Oh my gosh, let's just say that's the soil that God intends to use always for remarkable growth. I love that. And you may not may or may not know, but my website is called restory.com. So it's about God giving us a new story. So my last question to you is how has God taken some of those broken places and how has he restoried you in the past year? Wow. Do we have another hour? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I do too. Well, let me tell quick a quick portion of this. John Eldridge and I were part of making a film that will be out uh, hopefully April, May of this year. And what we did was six of us went on a motorcycle trip in the back country of Colorado. And basically that's the setting to talk about story, knowing that the trip itself naturally would create its own story. And it's a beautifully made film, not yet available. Uh, It's beautifully written by John in terms of narrated. But on this trip, we were very close a number of times to very, very dangerous things, uh, literally falling off cliffs that were about 2,000 feet above the ground. And in that season, Jesus began to work on my heart with regard to some some vows that I made as a very young man. And that is a, a vow that I, I don't care if I live. I, one of the ways that I learned to deal with my abusers was to be crazier than they were, which meant I had to be virtually immune to suffering and to the fear of death. And so I I made some deep early vows that my life wasn't worth much and it didn't really matter whether I lived or died. Well, I've dealt with some of that, but on this trip, Jesus started doing more work and inviting me to see that at one level, I need to be much more afraid than I often choose to be. And in that fear, to honor not being afraid, but honor that I actually have a commitment to live, not just to not be bound by death, but actually able to bless and 
enjoy life. Now, is that directly related to my past abuse? Oh, yes. And yet, it's also a war that's had to be addressed in many other areas of my life. So, I would say in the last year, uh, Jesus just continues to invite me to see fragmented, broken parts of my heart, areas where I've made agreements and vows with the kingdom of darkness that I wasn't even conscious of, and yet he chooses to sort of, at this season, bring this before the proverbial screen to say, do you really want to have a bond with death? Do you really not want to bless your body and your life? And to actually have to admit, I'm literally riding on the side of a, a cliff about five and a half, six feet wide, and with one side about a 2,000-foot drop, that was the context where Jesus was inviting me to life. <laughs> and, and I said, yes, again, yes, I want life. I don't want to just live through this event. I want the life you wish for me. And whenever that work occurs, oh my gosh, we're addressing our sin nature, we're addressing the warfare, we're addressing the issues of past abuse, we're really addressing the restoration of the heart. And uh, so that movement, uh, I think, was one of those sweet gifts of the year 2015 for me. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the Restory podcast today. And just thank you for your honesty and your ability to kind of put into words some of the things that many of us have been feeling or thinking, but maybe haven't had the right space to do that. So thank you so much. Oh, Mary, and thank you. Thank you for allowing your story to be part of the drama of the work of recreation and the retelling of, of really Jesus's story. Because in that sense, for both of us as victims of abuse, it isn't just our healing that's central. It's that we get that privilege, as you used the word earlier, to be a testimony, to be a story about the work of redemption. So to be with not only a fellow sufferer, but as well, someone who knows what it is to say hell no and heaven yes, a great honor for me to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you right now? Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you that you're big enough to answer and shoulder the questions that we have and maybe not answer them to our satisfaction in this life, but someday we will understand all of this. For those who have suffered under the the strong man of sexual abuse, under the the weight and the heaviness of that, I pray for release. I pray for freedom. I pray for hope. I pray for perspective. And I pray that this episode will open up new areas of healing and new avenues of healing. Lord, I pray it would not be a trigger for those who have been victimized, but instead would be an invitation to new places of growth and healing. We're a broken people, Jesus. We're broken in many ways. We may not have that story of sexual abuse, but we've been broken by other people in the past. And so I pray for those who carry a heavy burden today of being broken by somebody else, by the actions or the sins of somebody else. And I pray that you would give us the ability as we walk through this grief to heal, but to also learn how to forgive, even though it's so hard, and to walk forward in such a way that we not only heal for our sake and for the sake of those who are around us, our loved ones, but also the people we will meet who need us to be empathetic toward their story. Thank you, Jesus, that you comfort us in any affliction so that we can comfort those in all affliction. 
we don't have to have the same story, but we can still be empathetic and we can still help others. So thank you for Dan and thank you for his book and thank you for his groundbreaking work. And I pray that this show today will be the catalyst of new life and a new story. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about today's show with links and extended information, please go to restoryshow.com forward slash 14. And may you live a brand new story this week.